Last episode, we spoke with this month's New Yorker for New York honoree, Susan R. Coleman, and business tech influencer, Rebecca Cohen. Susan Coleman is being honored by Citizens Committee as the activist. She became the co-chair of the Republican Coalition for Choice in 1991 and spent her days on Capitol Hill and across the country, championing a woman's right to choose. Even though she made a detour to Washington, she has been a part of the fabric that has made New York what it is today in so many ways. Let's dive back in. I want to talk a little bit about our generational differences, okay? I grew up as a, as a woman in a very different world than you're growing up as a woman. And uh, hopefully it's a better world, but probably even more complicated. My parents' world, the women had fewer choices. I had a little more choices, and I think you have even more choices. And choices are terrific, but they're also very complicated. And um, I spent a lot of time as a young adult uh, trying to figure out how to deal with the choices I did have. Uh, and those choices were family choices and work choices and how you put them together. And uh, in my particular world, I thought you got married, you stopped working because you take care of your family. And I spent the first year trying to figure out how to cook and uh, made a lot of messes in the time, but also realized that I was getting pretty boring as I was talking to my husband about, you know, I went to the meat market and I found this and I found that and I, I was able to get your suit cleaned and uh, my level of content was uh, boring myself. <laughs> and I tried to figure out um, how to improve that. So I volunteered at the Metropolitan Museum because I really liked the furniture, and I volunteered in their American wing, and I had a wonderful project short, for a short period of time. I was cataloging 17th and 18th, 19th century furniture through uh, auction catalogs because they didn't have any uh, directory. And I finished that, and I went two years, spent two years doing that. It was really interesting. I really learned a lot as a volunteer. And I said to my boss at the time, I'm not going to name him because he's a terrific guy, but I said to him, what, what can I do now? And he said, um, well, you know what? We, we, our offices are in the catacombs, you know, below in the basement of the Metropolitan Museum. And he said, uh, they, the shelves really need cleaning. And I said, What? I spent two years cataloging, and now you want me to clean your shelf? I said, I quit. <laughs> and I was at a loss. What What am I supposed to do? You know, I I was a relatively smart person. I didn't have a – I had a college degree, but not an advanced degree. And I was able to uh, talk to people that I knew, and one of the people that I knew was a woman named Ellen Strauss. And she had started this uh, organization called Call for Action. And uh, it was a way to instruct or provide information for her volunteers to partner with the radio station in order to deal with people who had problems, problems like no heat or hot water, social security check didn't come, variety of problems that they couldn't solve on their own. And she had a contract with these volunteers. This is just unheard of. She said, I will teach you how to work the resource books and be helpful to these people, but you in return have to commit to two or three days a week, whatever it was, certain hours, et cetera, and it's a job, even though we're not paying you. And it was a real inspiration that somebody took volunteering 
seriously that you know you could do something really helpful useful as a volunteer and it would be recognized so that's how i started to get involved uh, and be active and be an activist and and uh start to open my eyes to how i could be helpful to my community and uh you probably didn't have to even think about being a volunteer you, you didn't think you were ever going to be a volunteer, right? But I, I I promise you, you should do volunteering, whether it's something you do as a vocation or as an advocate. You should, everybody should do some volunteering. Yeah. For my generation, public service is the choice among many. I had a lot of friends in law school who went to law school knowing that they wanted to focus on public interest law, but it's public service is, it's a career choice. And whether that means trading the corporate world for something that's lower pay, it's still a career path as opposed to needing to just do unpaid volunteer work for something fulfilling. And I think it's the the unpaid volunteer work that a lot of people then, you know, layer on to whatever their day job might be. Um, and that's how it, it's been for me thus far, because I've had my legal career. I'm also, I'm on the board of directors of a nonprofit called Scenic Hudson that does environmental work in the Hudson Valley, kind of all the way down to kind of just the northern part of the city and through Westchester. Um, and, and that's been really rewarding. Susan, would would you want to talk more deeply about Ellen Strauss? Well, um, for me, uh, in all honesty, women have been my inspiration. Uh, starting with my mom, um, who was a really smart person who never finished college, uh, but was incredibly well-read. She was basically, you know, taught herself all of that and had just an amazing uh, sense of logic. And her strength uh, uh, always impressed me. So my mom was a big model for me in so many ways, and yet she didn't, never went into the workforce and never pursued it other than her particular interests, which she pursued. So my mom is a huge, Ellen Strauss was the next, and, and not only volunteerism that she introduced me to, but she introduced me to real public service and a little bit of politics, because obviously policy is terribly important for all kinds of things, and she was involved in everything. And um, I, I had another turning point. Again, women helped me when I had not been well, and I was uh, went to a, a kind of a spa, and uh, we had an evening where we were sort of sitting around. It must have been uh, about a dozen of us, and everybody was saying, "What is it you want to do? What is it uh, on your mind?" And at the time, I was really upset. It was during the Reagan administration. Their anti-choice rhetoric and push and I said that and so somebody in the crowd said why don't you do something about it and I kind of looked at them and I said what what can one person do and they pushed and they pushed me and I went back home after that adventure and uh, sought out people and darned if I didn't try to do something so that was an incredibly inspiring uh, moment I found another great woman and Mary Dent Crisp who was a former co-chair of the Republican Party and started an organization called Republican Coalition for Choice. And I met with her and asked if I could be of any help, got involved with her and ended up running that organization for a period of years. So women have really often been 
key players in different times in my life, and uh, I'm very appreciative of that. So that's also kept me involved in thinking about women and how we all struggle and what our goals are and how we get there. I bet there are women been in your life, too. Yeah, it's um, it's actually interesting. Your description of your mother sounds a lot like my grandmother, who was just very active in, in women's organizations and and in Jewish causes and built a temple in their town in Connecticut. And just, I mean, for her, volunteering was a full-time job. And, you know, whether it was in part that she didn't, you know, she didn't have options, she wasn't allowed to join the family business, but she was part of the leadership of this temple she had created. And I don't know for sure. I know that my grandfather, her husband, was the president of the temple. I don't know if she was allowed to actually be the president of the temple, but she was certainly the president of the women's committee of the temple. And I think what what resonates also with how, how you're describing these different chapters of, and what you've been involved in is that it's kind of up to women, even if you have mentors, it's still up to women to chart their own course because there isn't a path that really exists that someone else has gone on that you can just follow in their footsteps. The world, when the world looks different every 20 or 30 years, it means that opportunities and challenges for women also look very different. And so, you know, we, we've discussed this in the past about how, you know, with your generation, which is my mom's generation too, it was about creating opportunities, breaking the glass ceiling. My mom wanted nothing more than for me to play soccer and baseball because she wasn't allowed to do those sports. And, you know, I in turn chose gymnastics and ballet because I didn't want to do what she wanted to tell me, but I could have done those other sports. It was at least, at least it was an option, but I was still, I still grew up thinking, being told that I could do anything right. But certainly when it came to academics, I could be in the advanced math class. I could study whatever I wanted in college. Career paths weren't closed off to me because of my sex or, or gender. I mean, there, it was the case then, and I, I'm not sure if it still is now, but I presume it is to some degree, right? There are certain things like math classes where it, it was mostly boys, right? There's cer- certain things where you, you would kind of choose in math or science to, to be one of few women, but I didn't view that as something that held me back. It's just, okay, I'm just, I just happen to be one of the few women in this. And for me, career-wise, I think because I just felt that, okay, the times were different. I'm being told I can do anything. So far, nothing's held me back. Um, I chose a career path in law, first in, in corporate law, doing corporate restructuring at a, at a large firm in New York. Then I switched to an in-house job in technology. And, and these are heavily male-dominated fields where just it, it's been sort of after law school, which was probably about 50-50 men and women. For my whole professional career, I have been one of very few, sometimes the only woman in the room. You know, you would see, you know, the, the entering class of associates was probably close to 50-50, but the people in the room who were actually in charge you know, it was very fewer women as you went up the ladder. And so seeking out female mentors on this path, they're kind of few and far between because I never considered what my career or life would actually look like 
once I had children, I just kind of kept charging ahead, making choices along the way, thinking, okay, if I get married, if I have children, it'll all work out. And, and even in my choice of the, the timing to have children, I didn't wait. You know, some people might wait to try to make partner and then decide they're going to have children. I just, I let things happen. I met my husband when I was about 30, or that's when we got married, started having children a couple of years later. And I kind of, when it came to career and personal life, I never wanted to sacrifice or compromise anything and just kept pushing ahead. And then it wasn't until I had my third child uh, almost two years ago that I realized I wasn't sure what it would be like to be a parent of three kids who are age five and under. And so I decided to step back temporarily. Well, I, w- I wasn't even sure what length maternity leave, but I thought maybe somewhere between six months and a year. And so I did that. And not that, you know, having a newborn and toddlers isn't a break, but I did that. And then COVID struck just as I was thinking of reentering the workforce. And, you know, I got, got an extended leave that was unexpected. And that I felt actually the most unprepared and unqualified to do that, which was to, to be a stay-at-home mother for such an extended period of time, juggling with the child care issues during COVID because one of our caregivers had gone, she was from California and went back to California because it was safer for her during COVID to be with her family. And I felt sort of after all this training in my life, all this education and career, I just felt almost actually unequipped to be a mother. Um, And it's funny, you had mentioned cooking, actually. I started cooking this, well, it was this year, Thanksgiving, because we couldn't do it together with the extended family. So we made our own turkey for ourselves. And that was my I think my first time really ever cooking meat and it actually turned out really well. The kids really liked it. So it set me down this path of cooking and making you know, chickens and buying meat and now going to the butcher and trying to get the best ingredients. And basically six weeks into this of, of actually cooking a few times a week, that is when I kickstarted my, my job search again. <laughs> It's also just, it happens to be a good opportunity in in the technology legal space that I'm in right now. But at the same time, it's funny because I was was enjoying the cooking. The food tasted good. It was rewarding that the kids actually liked it. But in hindsight, it it may have been that that cooking that that kind of sent me back to (laughs) to want to go back to the office. Um, But it's to the, the question about mentors, because I haven't, chosen female dominated professions or even sort of female sort of equivalent representation professions. I haven't had sort of dominant female mentors along the way, but I've had just people who have inspired me through life in general, starting back to childhood, even right friends, parents who are extremely generous. And I was always at their house and sort of they modeled good parenting to me which I also, you know, got that from my own family, but in terms of just seeing how other people do things and just help others, right? It's one thing for my own family to be generous and take care of me, but for, you know, someone else's family to model that generosity. And so I think I equate mentorship with generosity and it's just sharing your time with someone, 
not as much about opening particular doors, but sharing your time and your insights and being available to ask questions and to give advice. And so for me, there are a lot of people I've met along the way in different contexts who have done that, right? Whether teachers, um, other lawyers I've worked with, other friends, and people who who do that and don't necessarily expect anything in return. Um, it's just true generosity. Yeah. One of the things I'd love you to do really briefly, because you talked about choices, the choice of where to educate your daughters, you decided to send your you know, eldest daughter to what kind of school? And could you talk about that decision really quickly, Rebecca? Uh, sure. In part, it was a matter of convenience, which is we, we had three daughters. And when we found out that we were expecting our third and that she was going to be a girl, that was when we were going through the application process. So that kind of helped seal the deal. Um, but at, at that point, we had already had both decided that we were leaning in that direction. And part of it was just a gut instinct, just the feeling that um, that we felt when we saw the classrooms at the girls' schools and just saw girls smiling and engaged and, and very joyful. And you see it in the classroom, you hear it in the halls, um, kind of the, um, those sort of informal moments, like those fleeting moments as you're walking by a classroom and girls are in it before class starts. And we just got a really good feeling about it. And so it didn't necessarily require that much sort of intellect on our part to make the decision. It was a feeling, but it was, you know, furthered by uh, people, you know, friend, good friends of mine who I've met in my life, and because it's, you know, uh, sort of across the country, single sex schools are much less common now. But one of my very good friends, who's one of the most inspiring people I know, had had also gone to an all girls school, all the way through high school, and he's so confident and passionate and just such an inspiring person that I kind of thought, you know what, if if that constant, if if even one percent of that came from her experience at a girls' school, that's something that I would want for my girls. And that friend also actually happened to grow up with with two sisters too, so a, a family of three sisters. So yeah, it, it wasn't necessarily a rational, calculated decision. It it just felt right. And I think looking towards the future, sort of for my own experience, growing up and going to a co-ed school, you know, as I, as I was saying before, I felt sure there was nothing stopping me from being in the same room as the boys or taking, you know, the same classes or going to the same schools, studying the same things. But it's that added the the advantage, I guess, you know, it's like that experience didn't necessarily give me an advantage when I got to the real world in terms of how to actually be a woman in a world, in a professional world that is still um, very male dominated. And so I figured, you know, if, if, the, if I look at my own life and the co-ed experience didn't necessarily give me a leg up, then maybe there's something happening in the girls' schools to to teach girls specifically how to sort of gain more power and utilize that power in a way that if in a co-ed environment, you can't teach that to them 
specifically because it wouldn't make sense to teach that in a co-ed classroom. So interesting. Um, you use the word joyful. I'm a product of all-girls school from kindergarten through college. In my era, school was not joyful in the lower school and elementary school and up through high school. It was just not joyful. You had, this is what you're going to learn, and it was a very uh, cold environment. However, very educational, learned a lot. And then you watch these schools over time and where they are today, and they have become uh, very joyful, very happy places. And joyful is a word my daughter uses, that she wants to keep her daughter joyful. It's I, You know, it's not a word that had been in my lexicon before. So it's interesting you use it and my daughter uses it. You're about my daughter's really younger than my daughter. In any case, uh, I sent her to a kind of all-girls school. It was a coordinate, and the, the, the schooling was separated. Girls went to school, and boys went to another school, but they were on the same campus. She's now sending her daughter, my granddaughter, to an all-girls school. Uh, and I think part of it is, I think in the beginning for girls, it, there's a lot of freedom just being together. Uh, without any uh, anything else, it's just uh, they're they're just a bunch of free spirits, feeling very comfortable together. And you have to remember that girls tend to mature intellectually a little quicker in the early stages than the boys do. So they're all sort of you know supposedly going at the same rate as opposed to the boys who be going a little slower at this point. Of course, they all catch up eventually. And the question always is, with girls' schools, uh, does that make you awkward or stronger when you start to go into a co-ed uh, situation? And uh, in my in my era, um, it was tentative. You felt a little tentative going into a co-ed situation because you hadn't practiced it. You didn't have it. I went to a girls' camp. I went to girls' schools. You know, I had a brother. That was helpful. But, uh, you know, he was my brother. He wasn't boys. So uh, the girls' schools are, are an interesting mix, and today it's interesting that they are thriving. People are dying to send their girls to uh, a girls' school. Uh, it be interesting to see how that continues. Yeah. For me, I, you know, I went to a co-ed school and grew up with a brother and never had a sister. So there is part of it for me that it's an experiment because they have three sisters, They'll go to an all-girls school. They they do have male cousins that are close enough in age, but I you know they're not they're not going to have much exposure to boys right. other than maybe their, their friends' siblings. So. Right, right. I, I I don't know if it's useful on this conversation, but uh, I I was thinking about the sports. I was very athletic, and girls in athletics were not particularly valued. Uh, when I was growing up. So it was all, isn't it nice that you're athletic? Uh, and by the time I got to college, you know, I was, you know, we had intramural sports. That was about it. And it was a real letdown. So uh, that's an advancement that's happened today where women who are athletic get uh, recognized. And thank you, Title IX. <laughs> This is such a fantastic conversation. Uh, I wanted to interrupt at certain points, but one of the things that first came to mind is uh, 
you know, it is so powerful to allow people to be who they are and stand in their truth and stand in their identity. And it was so powerful for me to see intersections of who would you be if you weren't in the other's gaze? And so when I think of, you know, single sex, single, you know, gender education, you know, I think it allows people to develop in who they are and their own confidence and sense of self before they have to go out there into the world. And I see the intersections and of all these different conversations with difference. I grew up in a very integrated town. It was a college town. It was a corporation town. So you had people from all over the world. And, you know, back in the 80s, you talked about things being black and white. So that was definitely a main dichotomy, but you had all backgrounds. But I also went to a black church. And who I was at my black church reaffirmed my identity. And I would dare say, gave me confidence to show up better when I was with my white, Asian, Latino friends, you know, back at school. And so I think of that, you know, worrying about how you're going to be when you end up being in a co-ed environment. Um, people have those very same debates about going to HBCU, a historically black college and university. But, you know, there is something when people are confident in themselves and they can show up better for others, which is really interesting. Mm. So your conversation, what I hoped and what I hope for this conversation, it'd be one where there are intergenerational exchanges. There's a love for New York City. There's a chance to see women in the lead. There's an opportunity to talk about different cultural backgrounds and, and families that came from afar with different cultural and religious traditions. There's an opportunity to talk about work. There's a talk about action. There's talk about hope for the future. And there's so much richness that comes in the two of you talking together. And I hope that we spark uh, you know, relationships here and also relationships where folks are listening to do the conversations and community building that I think is at the center of bringing New York City back. Because the Citizens Committee for New York City, when it was founded, was about bringing people together to improve communities. And we do that by reaching out to one another, whether it's over Zoom or phone, as we're even doing this podcast over phone, but it can also come uh, once we are out there in the streets again, safe. Well, I'm in awe of the journey you've taken, Rebecca, because you've taken a journey I didn't take. And um, you've become a professional in the workforce. And my hat's off to you. You've got a lot going forward in terms of what choices and actions you may take that will continue your journey. Um, I've very much enjoyed meeting you and talking with you. I look forward to COVID being over and we can uh, have that cup of coffee together. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> okay. Our goal is to raise $1.5 million this year through our virtual New Yorkers for New York fundraising campaign so that we can help New Yorkers get back on their feet. Every gift received will be matched one-to-one up to $150,000. Go to citizensnyc.org slash New Yorkers to get full access to our new site and find out how you can donate.